Hi guys, welcome to Jules and Phoebe, the weekly pop culture and social commentary podcast brought to you by yours truly, Jules and Phoebe. Hey Phoebe, how are you? Hello Jules, it's good to see your face, it's good to hear your voice again. I feel like it's the first day back at school. Yay! And then you see your friends and you're like, hi. Like, will we sit together at lunch? You can say. I know. And then it's like a rejection. I feel like it's so long ago since I was in school. I can't even imagine what that would be like. Now everyone's gone back, like, and they have to wear visors and masks. At least with us, we're just sitting in our own houses. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know if they have to wear visors and masks. When you hear that. My mum is a special needs assistant and she is wearing a full visor. But I don't think primary school kids have to wear masks. I think maybe secondary school kids do. Um, because okay. my, my sister's a teacher in secondary school. So I mean, whatever it is, there's no kissing behind the bike sheds going on. Yeah, it's so difficult for me to keep up with what is required and what Yay. is not required. So I can't even imagine like the students right now what it's like for them I think what did really upset me over the break that we've had is when I heard that they are taking away free public transport for under 18 year olds oh wow I must have missed that yeah so they're restructuring transport for London and they're taking away free public transport because right now transport is free until you're 18 yes yeah yeah, yeah. and so yeah. they said why they're taking it away or is that just just Tory government things yeah, it's just like, obviously, they're trying to cut costs. And they think this is an area where they can make money because right now it's free for young people. I suppose, uh, yeah, when you take into consideration that most people have not been using public transport over the past six months, I'm sure that TfL has had a significant hit to it. But all the same, it's like, mm. how funny that we just keep forever punching down. When oh, it- forever um- punching down. Because the executive pay at TfL is huge. Oh, they're on like six figures at least. Always punching down. And it's like young people have nothing. Mm. Like young people who are not from affluent backgrounds. Of course, we saw that with, you know, what they tried to do with the A-levels. Yes. So we had a huge scandal around, you know, A-level results in this country and the algorithm. You can go and research because I cannot go into that right now. I'll lose it. Mm. But then sort of just a summary of that is that it basically negatively impacted kids that go to state school yes. rather than, than kids that go to private school. So it's so sad that it's always working class families that are bearing the brunt of, mm-hmm. oh, we've got to change this because of COVID. So there was a petition that went around and I signed it about this free transport for young people. And then obviously loads of people signed it because people were outraged. And then the government has to respond when it gets to a certain number of, right, yeah, uh, so of signatures. signatures. right? Yeah. And the government said that, oh, we need to reduce the number of people on public transport because of COVID. Oh, you're joking. Yeah, so it's like they use COVID as an excuse for everything. Wow. It's it that. is so funny because there was actually a lot of talk. So I'm from the West Coast of Ireland. Now that work from home has been really kind of rolled out en masse, there's been a lot written about, you know, people realizing that actually if it's the case that work from home is going to be the new normal, you can look to relocate. And I mean, you don't need to be based in London to be working for a London headquartered company, for example. And uh, I was seeing a lot of stuff on Facebook, people my age saying, you know, it's already impossible for us to get on the property ladder. And now what you're going to have is a huge surge of people 
who were living in cities and now will be relocating to the country and snapping up, like driving up the the price of property here as well. So mm. it's it's an interesting concept because I don't think like for our generation, I already think it's very difficult for us to get on the property ladder. It's interesting that not only is that likely to remain the same for the generation after us, but we're also taking away their free transport. <laughs> yeah, and there was a report that came out a while ago and it said that for the first time, young professionals in their 30s like more are leaving London mm. than like deciding to stay in London. So when people get into like their 30s and like they have like their long-term partner, they want to start a family and A, they want to settle down and get onto the property ladder. A lot of those people, the majority, 50% plus are leaving London. Mm. So now in the context of working from home or companies being more flexible, you will have more people deciding Look- to leave London. Yeah, for sure. Right? Because now they don't even really need to be close to the office. I think it's actually beneficial for those people that can have a place in London and Mm -hmm. then, oh, they can just go and get their second place. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they can say, oh, okay, we can just do it now. Right? So it's... um, It is obviously, we've spoken about it before in terms of I went to Devon last year and the taxi driver was saying how he had moved from like another part of the UK mm. to Devon, thinking there were opportunities, but like really struggled to get opportunities. And was saying how people with the London wages, all these like entrepreneurs and yeah. people who've got this flexible working, they've already moved out of London and they're driving the prices up. And, and that's just going to happen more, right? Like it's tough because I think that then what happens is you make the wrong people like your whipping boy. And there were a couple of posts I saw, like I said, I'm originally from the West Coast of Ireland. There's a lot of seaside towns where I would have spent my summers growing up and where people I know would have had holiday homes and things like that. Like my grandma was from a place called Kilkee, so on and so forth. And there's a lot of people talking about this big tech, you know, kind of, as you said, the entrepreneurial kind of young executives, and maybe sometimes older than that as well, who have their holiday homes or their retirement plans for these seaside towns. And the critique is very much so like, well, you're driving up property prices. And the problem is that this is never going to be a topic that say you and I can put to rights in an hour long episode of a podcast or 30 minute or whatever, because the people you're critiquing or the people who are being made the villains in this particular instance are the people who are working flat out to pay a second mortgage. They aren't the villains. They have maybe gone to work in the city because they thought, you know what, I want to be able to get on the property ladder. I want to do, you need to critique the broader capitalist model fundamentally. Like people who save their pennies so that they can have a secondary property by the sea or in a place outside of the city, wherever it is, the Peak District, the Cotswolds, like they aren't villains for aspiring to that. Yeah, but the challenge you have is that it's not people saving their pennies that have a second property. So even for you, like if you have a property in London, the vast majority of people who are able to buy in London, and when I talk about London, I'm talking Mm -hmm. about zones one to three but the vast majority of people that are able to buy in London their parents or their family members contribute to their deposit they get on the ladder then obviously you're able to like remortgage then maybe get a second place right yeah so if you're in a position to make those types of decisions in the United Kingdom you are privileged there are people who are counting their pennies and don't even have those options 
I don't think anyone's a villain, right? But I don't think the person who's got their second place in the Cotswolds is counting their pennies. But some of them are, because whether it's a case of like a second property might be on the coast in Wales somewhere where my husband spent his summers growing up. Like you've got to remember that some people are like, we think of things with a very London centric view, but there are people who maybe live outside of London already and then also have a secondary property up the coast. And it's like, you know what? That is something that one day I'd love to be able to do that thing where you decamp for the summer, like Mm. where you're just off and you've got your place that you can go to for the weekend, wherever it is, like be it Margate or if you're in Ireland, if it's down the coast to Clare or you're going to Galway or something like that. And the fact is that like it is not your regular Joes basically who are contributing to this toxic environment where young people can't get on the property ladder. But you're right to say that there is like a system of privilege that allows the nice houses to just pass from like family to family, basically. I think when you're talking about, it's two separate conversations, because when you're talking about people deciding to buy second property, like by the time you are thinking about a second property, like I'm not concerned about you, like you're good. Yeah. (laughs) You know, the delivery drivers, you're completely fine. And then in terms of just like young people, yeah, I mean, wages are depressed. Mm-hmm. Opportunities are hard to come by. Degrees are not worth what they used to be. Sure. So it's super complex, you know, and it's hard. And I think with COVID, all the numbers are coming out. Who's cutting a head count here? Who's cutting heads here? Yeah. So it's not going to be easy. No, it's not. And it's strange because I think that to a large degree, it kind of felt like we should be coming out the other side. And like over various points during COVID, I felt like upbeat or I felt more kind of like down in the dumps about it. And obviously we took a break for August just because I think that for both of us, we were suffering from a little bit of burnout. And I do think that one of the things that from a very privileged perspective, again, from myself, like one of the things that I've struggled with is the reason that I love London is the social aspect. I love going out for dinner. I love meeting friends for drinks or going to a gallery or a film or, you know, going out for brunch. And when all of those things are locked away and it turns out that London is just my house, I've really struggled with that. Like we went out for dinner, my husband and I, on Friday evening, which was the first time in six months that I had gone out for dinner, like had a glass of wine, basically not in my house. And I was dancing down the road. I was literally like, I kept going, oh my God, are you as excited as I am? I am so excited to have someone ask me what I want to eat. I was like, I'm probably going to get a starter. I think I'm going to get dessert as well. Like it was like getting my first paycheck or something like that. Suddenly I was like, oh my God, all of the options that are available to me it's insane <laughs> no no it's true and I think that's like the great thing about or one of the great things about London for sure I mean I've started seeing people now and it's just so fun it's just so yeah great to like just go for drinks like hang out with people mm-hmm. I mean personally me like I don't think that I would move out of London anytime soon no it's just no. not something I'm interested in. I'm not interested in it. Like, I'm very happy, you know, over August, took a couple of breaks to the countryside. I enjoy that. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that that's where I want my life to be just yet. I don't. But I am I'm from London, so it's, it's different because I'm from here. Mm, like, I don't think I'll ever not live in a city just because I love everything being available. And now my family in Ireland, like, live in the middle of nowhere. And it's even just things like I want to get something at 10 p.m. I leave my front door and there is a shop 
open that is available to me and I can do that. And so I think that you can either deal with not having that available to you or you can't. And now that being said, like a lot of the time, if I do want something at 10 p.m., I'm still going to be like, I don't think I'll leave the house. But there are options. (laughs) There are options. And it's just the people like I just love being around different types of people. Mm -hmm. No, for sure. Tell me, because we obviously haven't been on the podcast for a month, was there anything in particular that was the making of your your sabbatical? Not really. (laughs) I did a lot of running. If you follow me on Instagram, I do a lot of running. So I did a lot of running. I spent time with my husband, Mm -hmm. which was needed because my schedule has just been crazy. So it was really nice to spend time with my husband. It was nice to go away to the Cotswolds with a few of our friends. We had like a great time. What really threw me off though, everything was fine. Everything was chill. Everything was smooth. Mm -hmm. The real bump in the road was the death of Chadwick Boseman. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He just meant so much to so many people. Mm-hmm. And he was, you know, everyone, you know, like Marvel are like, you know, rest in peace to our king. And Chadwick Boseman really was a king in yeah. the sense of when you think about how he intentionally like served. It wasn't like a fluke that he ended up being Black Panther. Mm-hmm. Like he was always very intentional about the roles that he chose. He was yeah. always very intentional about the stories that he wanted to tell and how he wanted to represent Black people mm-hmm. globally. Right. He'd had such a diverse range of roles and meant so much to so many people and was so gracious. And if you think about when Chadwick really became famous, he became a household name when he had already been diagnosed. Yeah. So to be so gracious and to be so dignified Mm -hmm. and to be so generous with yourself, with your time to invest in people the way that he did when he was dying, basically. Yeah. This he was is committed more to the work. He was committed to the legacy. You know, obviously you have people that are like committed to their work. It was like so much more beyond that. No, That's but I why feel like I... the work in question was like, he, he was committed to the work in terms of, I don't know if you read the piece with Ryan Coogler that he wrote, the, the kind of obituary that he wrote, where he was like, you know, Chadwick Boseman played such a significant role even when we were putting Black Panther together. It was him that insisted that all of the characters would speak with an African accent. Like, so when I say committed to the work, I mean that he saw the bigger picture of the impact that his work had. And so when he was taking roles like Jackie Robinson and Thurgood Marshall, he was very intentional about the iterations that he was putting out into the universe and the impact that that was going to have on people to come. Like Black Panther was the, for a lot of people, the first kind of, well, not the first black superhero, because like, I know that there are other black superheroes available, but like, what I mean is, in that casting and in that film, the representation for African diaspora was so, was so beautifully executed and so kind of really intentionally thought out and put together. I feel like there's a lot of beauty in knowing that he was very specific about what he wanted that to look like. I agree with that, but I'm talking about something that's so much bigger than that, because that's like a creative genius Mm. and he definitely had a vision. So that goes without saying, but his character, yeah, you know, when you think about his character and the fact that he was so powerful, so dignified, but there was still a humility 
Mm. about Chadwick Boseman that you just don't really see. You don't see that walking down the street, let alone somebody that's as successful as he is. And that's what was so touching about him. And I think that's why he was the perfect person to play T'Challa in the first place. Like Mm -hmm. there are a lot of young black male actors who are talented, but he was gifted Mm -hmm. in that sense. He was gifted to be so successful, to be so committed to his craft, Mm -hmm. to have a vision, but then to still be humble. And that's why people do say he's a king because, you know, and I think Trevor Noah really summed it up very well on his Instagram when he said, you know, he's not a king because we followed him. He was a king because he served his people and his community so diligently. And I don't know if if it's something that everybody grasps, but that's why it just hits so differently with Chadwick Boseman. Obviously, Kobe Bryant, again, another legend, passed away this year and that had a huge impact. Mm-hmm. But like with Chadwick Boseman, it was just, I don't know, it was just that was just so tragic. Yeah, I, I I agree. I think as well, like, obviously, when we talked about the, the Kobe Bryant thing earlier this year, I feel like I've got to eat my words a little bit, because I was kind of like, I've never grieved over a celebrity dying. But I actually did shed a tear when when Chadwick Boseman died. And when I was reading some of the tributes to him, and I think that what you've got, when you look at Kobe and Chadwick, you've got two really interesting, not interesting instances of of grief but you've got two like juxtapositions there where like part of the tragedy of of Kobe Bryant dying was that it was so sudden it was so unexpected um and it was like a freak accident and then you have the same kind of level of tragedy and grief with Chadwick Boseman but what you also have is an additional layer of sadness to know that he knew he was going to die and there's like a, a weight that goes hand in hand with that as well because you think about the four years where he was coming to terms with his diagnosis and persevering despite that. So like it has been a a hard year in terms of losing people like that, who ultimately had such a positive impact and left such an indelible mark on the industries that they were a part of and the people that they were in contact with. Yeah, absolutely. And it's very, very, very hard for black people because we don't have many black actors that get the opportunity. Mm -hmm. Like you said, you know, there aren't that many black superheroes. In terms of movies, you've got Wesley Snipes in Blade Mm -hmm. and then we didn't have a black superhero that was made by a major studio. We didn't have it. And then obviously you had Black Panther and then I think Netflix is doing some great work. So it is very hard because when you don't have that many role models when you don't have that many people that have had the opportunity to impact people in the way that Chadwick Boseman did Mm -hmm. to lose him it's an even greater loss Mm -hmm. because we just don't have that many yeah we don't have that many at all so it will be really um interesting to see how Marvel handles it like I trust them I think they will sort of handle Black Panther 2 with care yeah, I mean, for sure. And I think that as a, a side note, like a couple of things that within the comics, Shuri actually eventually takes on the mantle of Black Panther as well. So whether it's uh, Latifah Wright, who then takes on that role, obviously, that's probably still up in the air. But I think that, you know, there were a couple of people who kept saying things like, oh, well, you know, the studio must have known, Marvel must have known, Russell Brother must have known everything. But there was an interesting piece that I read briefly in The Hollywood Reporter that was saying that actually that's probably not the case because studios like Marvel 
can afford to take the hit for insurance costs with illness. So the likelihood is that actors don't have to answer that level of kind of personal questioning where you or I entering into a job might have to disclose that information for the sake of healthcare or worker liability insurance or whatever. But because there were some people who were kind of saying, well, actually, people must have known. But it certainly seems that that wasn't the case, that the the directors and the other actors that he was working with were as surprised to hear this news as you and I were, because the inner workings of studios don't have to basically operate in the same way. As far as I can see, it was really just like his wife and really close family that, that knew what was going on and good. You know, you don't have to share everything with everyone. It takes, I think, a lot of strength to create that boundary, because certainly from a celebrity perspective, I'm sure that you can get caught up in thinking, well, these people own me because these people are who go to see my films or whatever. And it's it's an interesting idea that you can actually start to take some of that freedom back. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's why when I thought when all of this came out, you really sort of mourned the loss of someone that was a great actor and made such a great contribution to this world. Then when you think about that dignity, you can only really have that dignity when you're able to set boundaries. Yes. Right. Other people, you can't let other people sort of dictate how you move, the choices that you make, the the, the way that you mm-hmm. run your life. And I think to be that famous, but to still have that level of control, like over yourself, it's very powerful. It's, and I really feel like he had reached that sort of level of consciousness where he wasn't motivated by ego. Yeah. Because if you're motivated by ego and people attack how you look, you sort of think, oh my gosh, I'm going through this. Like, yeah, I'm going to retaliate and tell them. I'm going to retaliate. So bad yeah. about, yeah. And so that's why I say Chadwick was on such another level in terms of his own consciousness, because a lot of people, it would they would be motivated by their ego, by their pain, by their this, by their that. And he was just another no. level. Yeah. I don't know what else to say but that. So No, um, I, I'm really glad you brought that up, actually, because it kind of felt like that's only happened in the last week. And I just think that, that the outpouring of grief when he did pass, you know, from from all of his colleagues, from people he's worked with at various stages, you know, it was all very pure. There was a lot of common themes there in terms of, you know, just a genuinely good guy, like a really nice person to be around. And he looked to elevate everybody else around him. But yeah, I mean, nothing additional to add that we haven't already said, but I, I agree with you. That was That was a very sad loss. But on a slightly lighter note, we have a fantastic guest on with us today. So we have Amelie Inusa joining us, who is someone that Juliet seemed to know <laughs> peripherally for absolutely years. But Amelie and I had the privilege of meeting each other a few years ago on a Nike project. So she is. What a joke, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> doctor podcaster influencer doing a lot of incredible work on instagram with a phenomenal podcast called after the letters which i would strongly encourage you guys to check out amelie thank you so much for joining us no thank you so much for having me i find it hilarious that we even met running because i have run once this year and that was on holiday and it's like what are we in like nine months into the year now madness oh, i know well funnily enough like i had a similar experience with it but i do feel like you know, in university, you set up your own running club, like mm. you were much more in the universe than I think I was. <laughs> so more crazy that I was even invited to take part in a project like that. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> we move <laughs> and we take the money, we move. <laughs> 
So I guess in terms of just a bit more of an insight as to who you are and and what it is that you do, I've been really fascinated. I've been really enjoying reading a lot of the content that you put together and that you kind of execute on your Instagram. And I think that you are one of the few people that I follow, I guess, like normal people Mm. that I follow, if that makes sense, who also very much so fall into that kind of influencer sphere. And I guess I'm really keen to hear you talk a little bit more about what that journey has been like for you, if that doesn't sound too trite, because you've always had a very kind of singular vision, I feel, in terms of the content that you produce. Has that always been something that that was of interest to you? I think I always was aware that it could be possibility that Mm -hmm. I would be like known for my content online, just because I've always cared about like the community, had a genuine interest about the work that I was doing. But also I am all about the aesthetics. Like I just like the way things look and everyone else likes the way things look. So Mm -hmm. actually just the fact that I was like savvy with like graphics and also Mm -hmm. communication. So whenever I'm like posting anything, I always say the thing that links all my stuff together is that I say communication is my superpower. So from my run club to like leading a big group of people, I think we had about 200 people who would run with us every single week when I was at university. And to a lot of the work that I'm doing now, where I'm getting a group of doctors together to talk about race in medicine. Everything's about communication, really. And I think that is like my singular thread. So I think it was always going to happen, but I just didn't know when. And I wasn't really looking for it either. So, yeah, when Black Lives started to matter, that's when like my (laughs) that's when my following went through the roof. Yeah, it's just a bit mad. Not going to lie. I follow you. And one of the things that stands out for me is that you're one of the few people on Instagram in the UK that's a black female that is becoming more and more visible by the day who is about the style but then also the substance right and I think you girl yeah and you know people that listen to the podcast know I don't throw out compliments (laughs) willy-nilly people who do the podcast honestly know that No, but I that that's why I follow you. And that's why I was so excited to have you on the podcast. And a lot of the time when we think about black women in the media, mm-hmm. like all the women that we love, like we do love them. But a lot of the time, black women are hypersexualized. Absolutely. So it's usually quite two dimensional. And sometimes when you're trying to do a bit more, it's difficult to package that. Absolutely. And I think that's so interesting because actually the way that black women would be elevated in the media is by having the most perfect hair, is by having the most perfect style, just doing almost like too much, but visually. And when we start to put out content, people don't really listen to us. And it's literally just within the past, what, two months now that everyone's profiles have just like elevated from nowhere. And I think that's literally just because everyone was at home. Everyone was seeing what was happening with George Floyd. Everyone was seeing what was happening with that woman in Central Park. And everything just came together at once. Actually, I saw an advert go online and it was saying, people like there were like lots of like Gen Z's and like millennials just like giving their opinion on the the way of the world at the moment and everyone was like oh my gosh even if this didn't happen in quarantine we'd still be talking about black lives and I was like no you literally wouldn't it's because everyone was sat at home and we were just like connected to our phones connected to one another and saw like for once oh my gosh all this stuff is connected and it's been going on for centuries and that's a very interesting point as well because when we talk about you inhabiting this influencer space and as you 
kind of tongue-in-cheek put it black lives starting to matter for maybe those of our listeners who who don't follow you yet I would say that you made a point yourself about a post kind of going viral wherein you spoke specifically about systemic racism within the NHS and when you know Juliet and I have had had conversations about this outside of the podcast basically talking about you know the courage it kind of takes to address issues like that within your workplace and what that really needs to look like for you. And I'm interested to know, because I think that you could argue that it's well documented, that there is a problem with systemic racism within the NHS. But I think that you could also argue that that awareness is actually only if you need to be aware of it. I, hand on heart, wouldn't have thought that that was an issue within the National Health Service. And I wonder when you were putting that piece together, and it is such great reading, so I would really encourage our listeners to check it out. Was there a part of you that was feeling like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to share this? Oh, my gosh, absolutely. I did not want mm-hmm. to share it. Like, it took me a week to actually post it. And really? I, interestingly, I had actually written to, like, loads of magazines maybe about a week into COVID. And that was, like, two or three months later, a week into COVID being like, hey, by the way, the first 10 doctors who have died are all black and brown or the I think it was the first 10 were all black and brown. And I was like, this is mad. All that you guys can really say is, oh, look at all these black and brown people. They're superheroes and they're amazing and they've saved our NHS. But literally for the past like decades, I've seen the way that people have like acted towards like immigrants in the NHS and just the way that my parents and the way our family friends speak about their experiences like coming through the NHS. You would just think that this is a completely different narrative. So I think when that first came out, all the like magazines and this is like a lot of magazines I won't mention. They just kind of like ignored and was like, oh, this is not for my audience. This is not interested. I'll tell you the magazine. So like so like, it's, no, no, it's fine. So I like messaged Wired. I messaged Vice. Then someone from Vice actually contacted me like after my post went viral. And I was like, look, it's only when the intention's there. That's when people want to talk, which is also fair because magazines need to sell. But yeah, I think it's really interesting how that post went viral at that moment, because had I posted it a couple of months before, that would have not been the case. And this is just stuff that every doctor has known and has been aware of, but they just hasn't quite connected with them. If we look at COVID, COVID disproportionately, you know, uh, black and brown people are disproportionately infected and then disproportionately dying of Mm -hmm. COVID-19. And they can talk about class and they can talk about being essential workers and people living in like crowded areas, Mm -hmm. right? But then if now you're doctors and you are of the class and you should be living in more comfortable circumstances and you also have the health education and also mm. do you know what I mean it's just interesting because actually when like, we are your at- colleagues shocked like are your white colleagues shocked at the statistics so initially I don't think they were shocked because I also don't think people were able to put all this information together mm. because the only reason it took traction was because people were seeing all the systemic and institutional racism that was in our system everywhere at the same time and it almost had to require a man to be killed by police it mm. had to require people to connect the dots and share it online it had to require a global pandemic to happen for all of us to be sat in our homes so actually all this information has been out there and I would expect that if I was a doctor working in like ONG primarily so obs and gynae and I was working with women there is absolutely no way that you wouldn't know that 
black women are five times more likely to die. And mm-hmm. interestingly, I say interestingly, sadly, that fact of women being more five times more likely to die has increased over the years. So I think in the last report, which was maybe five years ago or so, that figure was about three. So things oh, are wow. getting, so things are literally getting worse. And when we also like look at the amount that black women make compared to white women and then white men, it's 19p difference per privilege. <laughs> so, <laughs> so white men, you are women. <laughs> but I think that that's a really interesting point as well, because like I'm rereading natives at the moment and Akala just say this thing about, you know, we believe that racists are bad people. And by virtue of that, we believe that only bad people can be racists. But like, so I, I can imagine that it would have taken me longer to realize that because it's not set up for me to realize. And I'm so keen to not be racist that it then becomes a thing of like, well, I have a blindness perhaps as to my weak spots around that. And that is fine, quote unquote, when I am working in financial data. But if it's the case that I have a stethoscope around my neck and my actions actually can viscerally harm people, that's a whole other level. Absolutely. It's it's a whole other level for sure. And like, I've been in the situation that Amelie's been in where, you know, you want to say something. And one of the things I wanted to say, so I went to Warwick, big up the Warwick crew. Apparently there's just Warwick people everywhere. Warwick people are everywhere. Warwick people are everywhere. People, I went somewhere and then someone said something like, oh, I don't want to see any Warwick people. And I was like, <laughs> I went to Warwick. Like, so I graduated from Warwick. I studied English literature. I was the only black person in my faculty there were lots of issues, but I was so social that I just focused on my social life. But like, that was really the first time that I had consciously experienced institutional racism. Like when you're younger, you might not be as aware of it, but I started to become more aware of it when I was at university. I thought, let me get my degree, go back to London and live my life. And then after I graduated, you start to see things like black students were being like bullied at Warwick and they were now protesting and saying that the university is racist and like bringing attention to all of this and then I felt so much guilt because I'm like wow I went through that system before they did and I never had the words I never had the language to really speak on it and then when Black Lives Matter happened I wanted to write a post about this because I just felt this guilt as someone who had gone through a system before not having connected with the people that were coming after me mm-hmm. but then it's so complex because I just didn't even really have the language to understand what I was going through so Absolutely. I wanted to write a post but then I was like okay yes Jules if you write something then and what and then I kind of talked myself out of writing something about this mm-hmm. so you had your post for a week before you decided to post Absolutely. it Absolutely. Mm-hmm. what made you post it in the end oh I just love that you guys just came in that kind of flow so going back to what Phoebe was saying about Akala when he's talking about basically in England people thinking racists are bad people all I kept seeing was like lots and lots of doctors literally saying oh my god the police are so bad they're so bad I can't believe they're doing this bad bad police like naughty police that kind of language and then I remember being just like yo you're also in a position of authority. You also have authority over the way people's like outcomes and their lives happen. How do you not know that five times more black women are dying? How do you not know that the first 10 doctors to die and 95% of all the doctors that died were black and brown? Like, how do you not know this information and how are you not connecting the dots? And I was like, if we too are also in positions of authority, whether we're white or we're black or brown, 
we too need to see how we're complicit in the system. So I was like, yo, this is also for me. This is also for black people who don't understand how they too are complicit, but mainly this is for my profession because that's the sphere of influence I hold. And which is fortunate because I also have a podcast which Mm. primarily talks to doctors. So I always knew that my audience, even though it was much smaller at the time, about the 2000 people were primarily healthcare workers. So I was like, okay, let me hold my people's account, including myself, by sharing this information in one post when everyone's eyes are fixed on this whole situation. And so between you posting it, between it starting to go viral and between you going back to work, what did that look like for you? Because I can imagine like you have very much so pulled the rug out from under a lot of people who then probably still knew you, followed you, were like in your sphere, as you said, but again, would be maybe coming from the perspective of thinking like, well, I'm not a bad person and racist are bad people, so there's no way I can be racist. So was there a point at which you started to get responses from people and you were thinking, oh God, I'm I'm not sure I'm happy I did this, if that's not too extreme a, a phrasing. For no, me. not at all. I was shooketh. Like, <laughs> so shook, honestly. So I put the post out and then I started getting some like likes and like some from my friends who were like, yes, tell them, yes. <laughs> I was like, okay, cool. I got my girls, like I love the girls with the fire emojis on Insta. So I was like, okay, good. And then I started getting these troll accounts. And I was like, wow. you know, when you're like, okay, I've made it. I'll have trolls. So then I started getting these accounts that would follow me with like zero followers, following no one, but talking to me. And at first I was just like, I was actually engaging with these people because I was like, okay, this is a hard thing as a black woman. You also are so cognizant of the fact that you don't want to come across as an angry black woman, particularly mm-hmm. when your online persona is about like your profession and your career. So I was like, it's cool. I'm going to engage with these people and have these conversations because they're having them publicly on my page. And then I started clocking that all these people were doctors because we were having very specific oh, like wow. conversations. So interestingly, I looked at their LinkedIn profiles and I saw that it was like one white guy and one brown guy both anesthetists who were messaging me and going back and forth and they kind of just kept going at like every little single point and I was look the reason I came to do this post was just to raise questions and for us to have our eyes on why a certain number of people were disproportionately dying in every sphere of our career and why these people were also getting paid the least and why these same people were also getting reported to the GMC the most. And then I was like, you know what? I can't continue to engage in these conversations. So I just was doing the whole delete, block, delete, block. But each time I'd go on my phone, I would literally have, I don't know, 500 new followers, 500 new followers, 200 new followers. And just to see those numbers come up is so Mm -hmm. mad. So I kind of had to like discipline myself. I was like, so my little sister, take my phone, change it. (laughs) Just take my phone. I don't need it anymore. I don't want it anymore. Because you know, also you can't log into Instagram on your laptop if you don't have the passcode for your phone. So I was like, please take my phone, sis. So I would just then come and respond to messages later on the evening and by the time I think the week or two weeks had gone by I must have had something like 30,000 likes and 30,000 shares I think now it's probably about 40,000 likes and shares so pretty much the same amount of shares as likes which is crazy. How did your colleagues react like the people that you're working with now or (laughs) lols so that actually inspired my second post so I've been locoming I'm now in training but I was basically picking up freelance shifts at the time and unfortunately I already booked my shifts for that week so I was going to work and then all of a sudden I heard these doctors being like oh my god did you see that pink post and I was like (laughs) oh my god (laughs) 
And because I didn't work in that hospital often, they didn't really know it was me. They were just talking and talking about it. And then one of the guys who used to work with me, he was, he looked at the post. He was like, yo, that's Emily. And I was like, oh my God. But um, it was interesting. We just had really open conversations. And to be honest, the first time in my life in a professional environment, I've been able to talk to white people about race in a way that I've never been able to do ever. And that's not without me trying. I did a lot of work when I was in medical school on widening participation, equality and inclusion when it came to race rather than gender. And those conversations, even though we were there to do that work, no one was willing to have them. So that was a massive shift that I've never, ever seen before. So that was great. Who is typically engaging or willing to engage in that conversation with you? Are you preaching to the choir or is it like people that never would have engaged before? Well, I think you almost hit on the head there because you've almost said like the experience of having these conversations with white people has become easier and more natural. And I think that's because we're saying exactly the same things, but the response that we're receiving is different. The response is, oh, it's just a normal conversation. It's not something crazy. Just in the same way that I can discuss feminism and the difficulty of women in the workplace with men, I'm starting to find that I can now do that with white people, which I've literally never been able to say. And you know what's interesting? I did this um, live, which I also hate the fact that I did it because I hate talking about race and telling people about it who have no idea I just don't enjoy that conversation I don't find it that fulfilling but I was doing one of those lives and like teaching people about race and the person who was interviewing me said oh my gosh no one has ever called me a white person before and that literally or she said that no one she never heard people refer to people as white people in a conversation Mm -hmm. and it literally blew my mind I was like first of all where have you been sis you've not been listening to my chats my black girls but also I was just like imagine not being referred to as a collective as a group but being allowed to be an individual what an amazing like privilege and what an amazing like thing that is just to come in as yourself not having to represent for other people so she literally blew my mind in that moment with her take I think I do that Irish thing of being like, oh, no, I'm not white, I'm Irish. So that's like a problematic thing. Can you just say yourself? <laughs> I know it about myself because I know that a lot of Irish people do it. And I'm like, it's because what we're trying to do there is separate ourselves from the UK. Because we're like, <laughs> what's important to remember is that even if we're racist, we're not colonizers. And I remember that conversation with my husband. And he was like, wait, so you didn't try and colonize anywhere and I was like we literally tried to colonize nowhere Charles and he's like no like you haven't (laughs) tried did you not even try and I was like no we really were just minding our business yeah Um, like y'all should have done (laughs) but so you mentioned about like the the having the awareness of you know and and this actually also speaks to the the idea of never being defined by your skin color from a white perspective not having to think about your online persona in a kind of a caricatured way is a privilege that I also benefit from. It's a privilege that most, if not all of my white counterparts benefit from. There can be elements of classism there, but there's no like the angry black woman that you've mentioned. When your educator position got really kind of elevated and you're getting these tens of thousands of likes and shares, was there part of you that felt like do I now have to keep educating? Like I, I wasn't prepared for this to happen so quickly and I want to keep something for myself. 
Yeah, so my aim has never been to be an influencer, but I know that the work that I want to do is going to be important for my profession. So actually, I think it really sat really well in what I want to do for my profession. And that is to get people to be more open minded about their careers, more thoughtful about the ways that they show up and work. Because I also feel like the more thoughtful you can be about your own experience, the better you benefit others who come across you. And that's so important when you're in a position of authority, because actually you can really like make or break someone's day you can make or break someone's like last moments with their dying family member you can like make or break so many like important scenarios so I think that is just part of the work that I want to do and obviously being a black woman I will talk about race I will always so talk about gender issues just by virtue of my own experience and by virtue of my own view so at first I was like oh do I have to keep doing posts about race because they were the ones that were getting traction and then I was like you know what I literally don't care I don't care about the numbers I'm just gonna continue doing what I'm doing and also like on the same wavelength I was like yo I've got 10,000 followers plus let me like DM some skincare companies and get some free skincare so yo <laughs> I am rolling in the skincare honestly I've got so much but your skin is looking good I was just looking at you and I was like damn she's looking good <laughs> I also feel like that's my ring light, but thank you very much. <laughs> no, I can promise you it's not because I've got a ring light on right now. So you're glowing, you're glowing. <laughs> yeah, I think that that is so interesting. Like we spoke a little earlier on in the podcast, Jules and I, about Chadwick Boseman and about him keeping that diagnosis mm. secret. And I think you've got this really interesting idea here where, you know, a lot of people were saying, oh, well, he was so young to have prostate cancer, screening for prostate cancer, colon cancer, I beg your pardon, but screening for prostate and colon cancer doesn't really happen until like someone's 50s. And he was diagnosed at, was it 38? And so like, even for the early stages, he was still a complete outlier. But then there was something that I was reading that actually like, when you talk about these kind of goal ages or the, mm-hmm. the guideline ages to start screening, it tends to be middle-class white men who are taken as the identifier. So like mm-hmm. prostate cancer screening starts at whatever, mid-40s, early 50s. But that's because we've looked to white men as the model for that. I've been obviously seeing like those conversations happening as of late as an earlier screening for black men. Should we have that or should we not? I think what's really like interesting is as a clinician, when you come across a patient, whoever stands in front of you, you might behave slightly differently. I've become more aware of that in myself and I shared a story recently. So a couple of months ago, I was in A&E, in pediatric A&E. And essentially I had this South Asian mother who'd come in and she was like, oh my gosh, please do this for my child. Please do this for my child. Check this, check this, check this, please, please, please. And To be honest, I was quite dismissive of her initially. And I think the reason I was dismissive of her, because somewhere in my mind told me that our South Asian women can be like quite overprotective of their children. She's probably just like wanting like more and more. And she's come in three times now. She's like a frequent attender. She's probably just like doing like team too much. And then when I took this patient's blood, actually it showed me that she had like a very, very serious diagnosis. But what's interesting is, had that been a white woman who presented with her child and was like, no, no, please, we've come here three times. 
my initial reaction, I know this for a fact, my initial reaction would have been just be like, okay, I'm going to do bloods, I'm going to sort this out. Because also, I haven't allowed this white woman to come in with all these stereotypes behind her, saying that, okay, she's probably like an overprotective white mom. Actually, part of me is like, yo, this white woman, she is going to like have my neck if her child Mm. does badly when she goes back home. And I think that's the really interesting thing about what white privilege is. White privilege isn't always about, oh, I get into things easier. No, you just get taken for who you are. And Mm -hmm. also people err on the side of caution with you more. And I think that's what's really important in medicine that we need to almost grant those same privileges to everyone. So every single person needs to be seen as an individual. I think you sharing that story is very powerful because what people don't realize is when we talk about white supremacy, when we talk about patriarchy, when we talk about class, when we talk about all of these structural things, every single person absorbs these things. Everyone, absolutely. Right? Mm -hmm. Everyone does, right? So we all have implicit bias. I think that also what you have there is like an aspect of awkwardness because nobody wants to sit and really take that time and be like, oh God, actually I might've behaved badly or I may have like proliferated Mm -hmm. these attitudes. But also in that reluctance to be like, oh, you know what, actually, I didn't know very much about it. And someone said to me recently, in fact, you may have even been the the one who shared it, Amelie, about the black doctor who is putting together the book of skin conditions, but how they look on black skin. Oh, he's so, you know, he's a medical student, by the way. He's literally in his like third year. He's so mm-hmm. cute. What he's so like, sweet. So amazing. And someone was saying to me, you know what, like I saw this and it was like attached to a post about a lot of whatever it is, say 43% of white people actually genuinely believe that black people have thicker skin. And there is like, you know, where that rhetoric comes from, does it come from slavery in the US or does it come from wherever, but that they had absorbed it. And they were like, you know what, until I read that, I had never thought about the fact that, yeah, I do think that. Why do I think that? I watched something that was so crazy. Um, it was a BBC, no, sorry, Channel 4 show. Uh, years I was ago. like, it had to be Channel 4. I was Yeah, I Channel 4, mad. Channel 4, and it was about like race, right? And it was about teachers and all this type of stuff. And this primary school teacher was telling a story about a black child in primary school. And she said that when this little girl fell over no. and she grazed her knee, it no. was red. And she was shocked. Huh? She didn't realize that it would be just the same. The teacher said this. The teacher said this. So so when you say people just, I don't know what's in their mind and what they think, but she was shocked that this little girl in primary school, when she fell over, that it was grazed. And I remember like, Growing up in England, Phoebe every time space, I, go, I can't. Phoebe, these are your people. You need to go and check out. <laughs> this is the thing, like, because to a degree, I think you know what. If you can take ownership and be like, "Listen, this is how deep it goes. This is what I thought." Like, mm-hmm. it's it's upsetting to know that that woman was that age. How many other children had? No, she but a teacher. That? No, exactly. that's what I mean. Like a custodian. How many children had she <laughs> taught before she came to that realization? Like, yeah. it's so. The harm that you are perpetuating, you you have no idea about absolutely. it. Absolutely. <laughs> but then there was a campaign where they, it was like a, let's say a Black Lives Matter campaign and they drew like a black hand, and like a white hand, like together. Oh my gosh. Oh, and my that. husband told me that the black hand had a black palm. Yeah. You know when you're like, no this? Yeah. No one no. looking at that, like that's not how black people's hands look. 
That was in the last six months, and it was something like Pretty Little Thing or something yeah, like I saw, that. Who did I saw it? everyone po- repost that as well, like loads yeah. of white people, God bless them all, like, were like posting. I was like, oh my God, what is this image that they keep sharing? But then you think about like Pretty Little Thing having all of those uh, yeah. happy words in Lewisham anyway. So it was like, please don't post a graphic. Even if you had gotten the colors of the palm correct, maybe you could not be paying people £3.50 a day to work <laughs> in like... Again, disproportionately black and brown people. Like it's just, it's tokenistic and gesture, even if you had gotten the gesture correct. And what's in store? Are you going to write a book? Or have you written a book that I can buy? Mate. (laughs) So like, interestingly, so I've always had this book in mind that I wanted to write. So I had written a, a manuscript literally last year. And then as soon as this post went viral, everyone was like, please write a book about race, write a book about race, write a book about race. And this was like all these, I was like, how about I write the book I want to write and then I'll write one about race and I can release them at the same time so that everyone doesn't think I'm all about race because I also don't want to like siphon myself into this small space mm-hmm. of race education because to me that's not interesting there's this like amazing James Baldwin quote that I'm not even going to try and find or try and say but he basically says that think about all the hours and the people lost just because all we focus on is talking about our struggle and talking about our race and actually we can talk about furthering some amazing things and so I definitely think there's a space to talk about race but I'm just like very cognizant of where I want to do that so we'll see we'll see I've been talking to agents but we'll see but um absolutely but just to let you know because I think this is the most interesting thing that I'm doing right now so Jules did a podcast with Toby who's like one of my really really close friends so me and Toby he's a GP trainee we've basically gathered a group of about 80 black doctors to write this document on race how medicine is complicit in race so we're looking at progression recruitment retention and social justice which is the most important part how we affect our patients so hopefully that should come out in October but yeah I'm really excited about that project at the moment amazing how do you go about doing something like that with the grace of god i'm yeah, like i don't really even is. know i don't even know so we've just so we have an institution backing you like how does it work so initially we didn't it literally started a zoom call so we just all sat down like so i was like hey any black doctors want to talk got a zoom call together and then from that zoom call we were like okay we need to create some sort of like document that shows the evidence base for how um medicine in the uk is complicit with racism and how we disproportionately affect black and brown people across all specialties and also our clinicians and our doctors in these specialties and then we started getting loads of people together and there's quite a few institutions who are happy and currently working with us so yeah just been working on that kind of in the background so i think the slow work is the important work it's not just these instagram posts so hopefully this is what really pushes forward movement and and adequate change how can people find you okay so if you want to give me skincare just dm me if you don't (laughs) want to go my profile and you can email me but my instagram is amalea that's my full name so at a-m-i-l-e-y-a at amalea and check out my podcast especially if you're a healthcare worker life after the letters it will be released this evening actually honestly it's so great to have you on i've wanted you on as a guest for absolutely ages so really really appreciate you letting us have you because I know that once things started to blow up for you you were inundated with requests so I feel like mm-hmm. it is 
quite a grab. Mate, didn't I even ask you? I was like, hey, can I come on your podcast? You were like, listen, I just want because, you to know that I'm very, I wouldn't have asked you. Yeah, you because know, like there were so many know. people that wanted me to come on these like massive podcasts. But I was like, nah, I actually wanted to speak to good people um, and people who are doing like a genuine important thing. And I think that's what you ladies are doing. So I also appreciate your voices. Follow us on at Jules Phoebe. Share the podcast with a friend. And let us know your thoughts. And uh, we'll catch you next week. We'll catch you next week. 